Welcome to the Sub Pop Cult Podcast. I'm your host, Michael McGruther. Thank you for tuning in to part two of A Compass, Not a Map. And a special thank you to guest host, Michael Albanese, who encouraged me to share my story with you. I want to go back to, you know, this idea of what you said before, of like you were in your um, mastering the chess game and learning all the moves and the pieces, um, which again is shrewd and strategic, but you know, you, you, you were all about getting people to help me. I mean, help you. Do you think that the, the idea of using people is interchangeable with getting them to help you? Is that really what it means when you're trying to get help from people in Hollywood is, is that you're looking to exploit or use some, something about them or their relationships to advance you? Well, yes, because that's the way the playing field is set up. It's not, a, you know, it's not an organic situation. It is, there's a tremendous amount of resources. There's I, the way I describe it is there's a big pile of gold and a certain amount of people have their hands in it. And they limit the access to who they're going to share that gold with. But every now and then someone comes along and knocks someone off the pile. And, you know, that's just, that's the game as I see it. And so the mutual using of each other in pursuit of that goal is the rule. That's the rule because that's how the game is set up. But it's the using of people, you know, for sex that ruins the individual and sends them to a place that is hard to recover from. That didn't, I wasn't sexually assaulted by anybody. Uh, there was an attempt, but I, I'm not a nice guy. And I told this guy to stick it up his own ass and get the hell away from my hotel room. Um, but then he blacklisted me and I never worked again. So. Okay. So you, you you have this transformative, redemptive experience reading C.S. Lewis's *Mere Christianity*. Had you even heard who, of C.S. Lewis before yeah, that? Yeah, just because *Narnia* is a famous book, and when you're a kid, you know people I'd hear about it, but it wasn't. I didn't know anything about the man. I didn't know about his life at all. Did you read screw tape letters after that? I did. I did, and my wife said when I finished the book, it looked like all the creases in my forehead were gone. Wow. <clears throat> and then I picked up everything he wrote and I just started reading, especially his essays, The Seeing Eye. And for the next 10 years, and I was blessed with a daughter at this moment, um, I fell into doing stay-at-home dad while my wife re-pursued her career, which is a fantastic career and she's a leader. But it gave me like this decade of living like a monk. I didn't watch TV. I didn't see any, like there's not a, an episode of Game of Thrones that I've ever seen. You know, I didn't do any of that. I didn't participate in the culture. I spent my time with exclusively with a small little child that I was day by day being the care provider for going to zoos, seeing things, you know, going, taking swimming lessons, preschool, all that. That was all under my care while my wife went and pursued her career is a reversal of what we were doing in Los Angeles. And it was a time of reflection and a time of absorbing and studying and seeing beauty in its true form once again. And it's not the big house in the Hollywood Hills with the very nice, you know, swimming pool and the way the lighting is. That's not beauty. 
beauty is the the thing that is hard to appreciate for what it really is until you again are small. You know that's why Chesterton's said, you know, to to a humble man, an ocean is really an ocean. You mm. know what I mean? And so that was my goal at that point was, ah, I'm I'm starting to sense that I've been missing something true and beautiful here, and and I want to never lose that again. I don't ever want to lose my connection to this thing, this beautiful life-giving force that's making me whole and feel better than I've felt in all that time that I had wealth and contracts. What is this? I don't want to lose it. And so I started, you know, my road to conversion and uh, entered into the RCIA program and did a, like a, a whole two years of like a very low rent RCIA, which means the Roman Catholic Rites of, Inici- of Initiation for Adults. It's like Catholic school for adults at nighttime. Mm. And, you know, it was in this old St. Michael's Church. And I mean, that's all I spent my time doing was just learning about the mystery and understanding that it valued me just as I was. The mystery of faith, the mystery of God, your father. Yeah. Um, and in, in, in that pursuit in realizing that you do have a heavenly father that loves you regardless, um, in relationship to your biological earthly father, what, what was that experience like? when you became a father. So there's like this trifecta of you have a, you have a heavenly father and an earthly father. One relate, one of those relationships is severely broken. One is perfect. And then how does that impact you as a father no, it's, to your daughter? It's very humbling. I mean, I don't, I have no problem sharing details about things that happened to me, but my father killed himself when I was in 11th grade. Um, there's a lot of people in my blue collar, sad town that have had that actually happen to them more than I knew when I was little. And I thought I was isolated by it, but that shook me to the core. And I was abandoned by my, my real world dad in a way that was probably contributed to me trying to piece together the worldly feeling of happiness, right? The success that I wanted probably was inspired by that lack of parental care from from my dad who I had a weird relationship anyway with because my mom and him were divorced so by the time I come around to where we're at now in my life as an adult so many years later I feel a sense of relief knowing that not only do I have a father I have an eternal mother too in Mary and that the and mm. Mary and Joseph are like these samples for me of the ideal of how parents should love each other and care for one another. And there's just this family that exists that you don't realize you're a part of and that is not broken and that is not defective. And it felt like the most wonderful, amazing peace to know and to, and and I mean, you have to really know it in your heart and accept it. You can't be like, Oh yeah. Okay, cool. You know what I mean? It's so different than that. It's, it's, it happens in those contemplative moments where you're staring out the window all by yourself on a weird day at a weird time and things just will make sense to you. And, and it just settled on me that I'm, I come from a good family and I don't come from a broken home. The mm. world breaks everybody up, but
but you start off, you know, in it, you start off in the company of of these these truths, and then they're sort of obscured by the way life goes. I, I want to come back to that, okay. um, but I I want to one thing I've always admired about you is uh, your love and penchant for science fiction, and I can see how. Uh, I don't know. I don't know if a lot of people know about C.S. Lewis that he had the same love for science fiction in his trilogy. Like, what about science fiction is so appealing to you? And who are some of your um, literary influences? You know, science fiction is appealing to me because I just grew up like you at the very end of the Apollo space era, and and Mm. I always felt a real attraction to that what I know now is the internal desire that all humans have to explore. Right. Mm. And so as a little kid, I have a a very strong memory of laying down in my backyard one day by myself on one of those perfect nights where all the stars are visible. Mm. And it's that, you know, I'm probably 10, 12 years old. We're learning about science in school. You know, they're showing us those old seventies movies. This is the sun, you know, and going through the planets and, that just fascinated me. But one day I just lay down, I look up at the stars, and I feel this connection to mystery and what could be and what's out there. That's the same feeling I got from getting to know God. I tasted it when I was a little kid in a weird little moment. And I tell people, be aware. Like, God's trying to tell you stuff all your life, and it's only in certain situations that you're capable to to actually see it and understand it. And so one of the things that religious people do is they, I think they try to keep themselves in a state where they can not miss the grace, not miss the beauty that is happening all around them. But that one little moment has to be one of the very first moments where my mind and my imagination and my heart felt a connection to something just space right it's just stars but there was a mystery out there to be discovered and that's how i i loved space obviously i grew up as a kid liking star wars but i was always hungering for something more real as far as uh c.s lewis is concerned his space trilogy was given to me by the priest that baptized me because he knew i was a science fiction writer and i loved it because it was a science fiction story that was actually a, a like a allegory for Christian life. And that's what my next book is as well in my attempt to emulate C.S. Lewis. So as a 10, 12 year old laying on your back in the grass, staring up at a perfect sky and realizing that there is something greater, there's some beauty, there's some um, intelligent design, there's something out there. So deep, deep within your heart, you know that as a child, which is why um, the faith of the child is talked about in the Bible so beautifully by Jesus. Um, and somehow we 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 lose our we lose our footing, we lose our path, we um, we have our imaginations beat out of us, and um, the path that you went on to rediscover that mystery and that beauty and that intelligent design um, was 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 so profoundly um, challenging. And, um, and I think about like, what if you had said yes 
to the gold. You know, like I'd be dead. Where I would think you I'd be, be dead. I'd probably be dead of a drug overdose right now. And I'm not somebody who has that kind of an obsessive. Like I don't, I don't use any drugs. I, I smoke cannabis, as you know that I've done that for years. I've never, you know, I was lucky to have a couple of movie stars pull me aside and say, "Hey, man, don't tr- don't don't touch cocaine," you know. But if I had taken the gold, I can't imagine that I'd still be alive. So you, unbeknownst to you, God is has you in the palm of His hand the whole time. The whole time. He's allowing you, and I, you know, I've heard it described that you know God is the perfect gentleman. He's never going to force himself on you, um, but he is—he is in some crazy way protecting you from the evil of the world, even though you didn't know who he was or even claim that he exists. That's right. I find that fascinating because I find that um, people who are given talent and ability and aptitude and giftedness whether they know god or not i always find like if you look at people that are performing on a stage in the spotlight i find that to be an act of worship whether they know it or not whether their intention is to worship god or not because to me it's like they were using the gifts that god gave them to entertain to bless to you know what have you um and you were given that giftedness and it's just incredible how and that's what's so fascinating about your story and why I want people to hear it because it is a cautionary tale and it's also a redemptive tale. And ultimately God is a God of redemption and love and restoration and taking all the broken pieces and creating something beautiful out of it. So your life, like mine and many others that may be listening, you know, we're, we're a lot, our, our lives are, are mosaics that are still being built. God sees the end result. And one of the verses in the Bible that I love most, and this will resonate with you, is that God is the author and perfecter of our faith. And I love that it's the author, that he's written it. He's written your story. He's written everyone's story. And we just day by day in faith walk into the next chapter, the next line, the next word. Um, and I just love that. Because he put uh, in our heart a compass. That's and right. And I think the world sticks in your hand a treasure map. That's right. Chase the treasure. I want to tell you something about my finding that C.S. Lewis book that I left out. If you remember, Ronald Reagan and Pope St. John Paul died within, I believe, months of each other. And then the Red Sox won the World Series for the first time in forever. And I've been a lifelong Red Sox fan. But that those three moments were, were happening at the exact same time that I was at my rock bottom, scared. And I, I have... <laughs> Alex, <laughs> and I have to and I have to share this part because it's significant. God, yes, he has me in the palm of his hand the whole time. I don't know it. I don't know who he is. But he aggressively comes into my life only after I pray desperately one time. I didn't pray. I didn't say prayers. I was one of those guys to be like, I'll pray for you. Yeah. Nothing that followed that. Now I can't even scroll through Twitter. If I see a prayer request, I stop. I make the sign of the cross. I pray for that stranger every single time. But then, it was like a joke to me. But I was so dark and in such a confusing, I don't know place that I said to my wife, I don't know how to get forward in this career. I either you know, go crazy evil and do all the things to get to where I need to go or 
what? And I didn't know what the what was. And the prayer was me laying in bed. St. John Paul died. It's on TV. All these things are going on. And in my most like exhaustive, I don't even know where, you know, I'm not even thinking straight. I literally pray, God, please don't let this pursuit of this career kill me. That's all I said. Boom. I find the book the next day. Wow. And I don't look at that as insignificant. It was the first time I was like taught, taught or tuned into awareness that he cared about me and was leading me somewhere and that he was my compass. But that, 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 that's the ultimate act of faith is to be able to call out to something you can't prove or see and for most of your life claim to not exist. I mean, to some extent, that seems a little crazy. You know, I mean, it just seems like what, why would you call out to something that you didn't, you couldn't prove? I think you run to, you and run that, to the end of your options, your worldly options. And then you just, everybody ends up saying, please, why they're calling out to God every time. And the next day you found the book. The next day the book found me. I believe that. And, you know, I've gone, it's been many, it's been over, it's been a long time since that book encounter happened. And every year there's some surprise. Every month, every moment I find some other thing that God is showing me on the periphery of what I'm paying attention to. But I'm getting better and better and better at seeing them now. I'm getting better and better and better at, at going, ah, I see, Lord, this is my, this might be what you want for me. And in faith, I'll go in that direction. And then what I put in my head about how it's going to play out didn't play out that way, but something else good happened in there for someone else. And I said, ah, I see. So this is part of how it works too. So in, you know, in my relationship with, um, with Matt Davis, we were working on a bunch of ideas and I was helping him with some project that he was working on, but it didn't work out the way we wanted it to. But we had a better understanding of something else through our interaction. To me, that's that's the divine working in real time. So for these you know, 10 years or so that you 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 took these vows, um sort of rejecting fame and all the trappings of the world. Sorry, like that's okay. Um, um, you know, it seems because I remember I remember you and I having conversations, and you were really hardcore about um, avoiding anything to do with Hollywood, to do anything to do with with writing, with success, with um, engaging in the in the culture. Um, but at some point, I believe you know we're put on this earth to transform culture, and I think that can be profoundly achieved by, um, by storytelling. So at what point did you realize that you could inform your storytelling with your faith, but not in an obvious way, not in a Christian way, because I feel like a lot of Christian art out there succeeds, um, not because of its quality, but it's lack thereof. Um, and that to me is, I feel like our call to excellence in everything we do um, should be reflected in the in our artwork, in our writing. <clears throat> so when did you realize that your faith could inform your storytelling? Well, it's a great question. And it's another 
it's another great example of paying, being aware of when God is working in your life and, and, and trying to understand it. When I converted, I told somebody that I grew up with, you know, that was always Catholic and had, it comes from a strong Catholic family. Somehow they found out because I think I was posting articles that were religious, which was very strange for me to put on Facebook or whatever. People would be like, what? That, that guy. Um, and so he said, can I come see you with some friends? I haven't seen you in a long time. I thought, yeah, sure. Come on. So it's almost like God sent me three wise men. And over the next 12 to 15 years, all three of them had an impact on guiding me into this relationship with the Lord that I didn't have before. And that guy introduced me to another friend that I got very close with who used to like out of his day, then what are you doing? I'd be like, Oh, I'm taking my daughter to the park. He'd be like, Oh, can I hang? I say, sure. And this dude who he's like a federal judge now, an important guy would take time out of his day to go to the park and draw me into a long conversation about Thomas Aquinas. Right. Just philosophical things. Talk to me about stuff. And that was how our relationship went. And he introduced me to like a huge money investor as well who could make, who, who could pay for a whole slate of films and start a studio. Because he said, I want to help you do the things that you're supposed to do. And I'm talking to this investor at a fancy restaurant and I'm making this like moral argument. Stories and blah, 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 blah. And, and this is the first time the guy is hearing me go on in this in this manner, which is reflecting my reluctance, right? It's reflecting my, I don't know, you know, you can't tell a story this way. It's got to be that way. And this guy says, hey, can you step outside? I have, a, I have a smoke. I stepped outside with him. And this is the interaction. He's just like, he gets right into it. He's like, our job is, is uh, as Christians, well, he said Catholics. He said, our job as Catholics is to tell the truth about human nature. You don't have to, you don't mm -hmm. have to lie about it. You don't have to tell people that you want everyone to be, you know, good and yeah. this, and, and you don't have to, you don't have to like hit that nail on the head. You got to tell the truth and then you got to show how good overcomes evil. That's what's missing. But don't ever tell anyone that you're some moral, you know, policeman. That's, that was, that was what I needed to hear. But that doesn't mean that I suddenly was like, ah, got it. You know what I mean? I spent, I spent, right. you know, years more just wrestling with what does that even mean? And so then flirting with getting back into show business, which is something I, I kept doing as I wanted to go out and make a lot of money and, you know, do those things again, because I felt like I could handle it. I kept running into dead ends and, and I realized, wow, this really isn't something I'm supposed to do. Maybe what I should do is what C.S. Lewis did. And I should use my vocation to write a book or books that embed the characters and the qualities that this gentleman was talking about, that show the truth about human nature, that reveal the truth about God without hitting the nail on the head. Because as the priest who baptized my daughter said, you just introduce people to the truth. Let God do the rest. Right. That's that's just how I've been taught. I'm not going to come hammer you with a Bible. I'm going to give you something like that friend did to me to think about. And if you look at C.S. Lewis's work, he's like, you know, the worst thing an atheist can do is pick up the wrong book because it's going to change your entire life. And so the worst thing that 
can happen to somebody that is under the, the worldliness shell is that a guy like me gets in and whispers something true in their ear that they can't stop thinking about. So mm. that's when it became my mission to be the whisperer within my work. But I also had to face the reality that there was no way that that would ever get celebrated, promoted, reach the mass audience that I would want it to reach. So really the focus of my prayers were like, okay, Lord, will this one be the big hit that I hope it is? You know what I mean? Because I'm not even hoping for the success that I've already had, which is financial. I'm hoping to get the word out in a stealth way, which is, I think, the reason I have my vocation as a writer is to continue the work of the C.S. Lewis's of the world who can write stories that tell you about the true nature of the Lord. So on that, I have uh, two questions about you. You just recently finished your newest book. Um, I'd love to the extent you're comfortable or want to uh, talk about the story. Um, and also beyond that, um, talk about, the um, new distribution model for artists and what it means to you for artists and storytellers to define their career and their storytelling on their terms and not Hollywood. Well, if you remember, as I said earlier, I've, I've pinpointed what, what show business is primarily about. It's about the acquisition of global intellectual property so that it can be under the control of one institution, one business. And because of that, I have wonderful ideas and screenplays that I've written that sit on the shelves at a studio that'll never get made. But people can open those and steal the best ideas out of them and put them into their movies like Interstellar, which is exactly what happened. I wrote Lightspeed. I sold it to Universal. I got called into the producers who made Interstellar. They read Lightspeed. You can't see the one movie and read my script and say there wasn't something fishy here. But that monster is so big and so powerful that it's pointless to even fight it. And also, I'm tied to something true now. I don't need to have that house that Jay-Z has. I don't need to have fans. I don't need those things. What I need is to somehow get the message out. And so it becomes the focus shifts. It becomes more about doing great work again. Actually, if you think about it, the Lord took me and said, all right, dummy, Go ahead and use your free will and do all this stuff, but I'll draw you back and I'll teach you what's right and I'll teach you how to write it. And I'm just at that point now where I'm like, now what happens? You know what I mean? So, but I do believe that um, I got a little lost there. Sorry. That's okay. Um, well, tell us, tell us, tell us about the book. Uh, the book is, I think, one of the better things I've ever written. And it's the longest book I've ever written. Transitioning from screenplay to novel was hard for me because if you're mm. a screenwriter, there's a lot of white on the page. And it's written from a God's perspective, ironically, where you're telling you, this guy is here and you're, you're juxtaposing scenes and you're creating moments and it's all about the dialogue. It's very hard to fill up a whole novel with 100,000 words. You know, That's why my first book was 20,000 words. My second book was 50 because I'm slowly figuring out this new way to write. And then I broke through on this new book, but it came to me purely as a religious idea. And if you, if you know anything about what people who talk about the Lord, they always talk about an encounter, right? The encounter with the other, the encounter with the Lord, the encounter with the Holy Spirit. 
So this book actually started out being called Encounter. And I took my science fiction ideas and I had this great idea about a guy who is involved in, he has a career in the Space Intelligence Agency. It's in the future. It's like the CIA, but it's in space. And and mm. um, they have really one job, which is to keep humanity sort of hidden from outside uh, forces because we know aliens actually exist. So that's the setup. We know there's intelligent life out there. And my hero is a guy who's, who works in the, in the organization that prevents rogue human beings from trying to make contact. And, in, and the, where, where my story starts is he's about to retire. And he's called into this mission that is very dangerous because not only are a group of rebels trying to make contact, they built themselves a spaceship and they want to actually go. And they want to meet these aliens and their, their uh, cult group and they plan to go in peace for all mankind, which is forbidden. He gets stuck on the ship with one other human, and that's the story. And what they find when they get to that planet is something you'll have to read. That's fantastic. What is the name of the book? Omim, because uh, Omim is the name of the other intelligent beings in the universe. And the presumption in this space agency is that the other intelligent beings in the universe are hostile and aggressive. Well, what what you learn in the very beginning of the book is that uh, in the year 2024, there was a message sent to space from this world. But that's all we ever got was one message. But it's crystal clear. It's authentic. Everybody knows there's life outside of life on Earth. And it dramatically changed the way humans live. You could say they were locked down. Hmm. So lockdown, it's too dangerous. We can't have contact because we don't know the power of the other side. So the, the whole world turn, turned into a world of turning inward. But the people, but the people mm. who are the rebels, um, they don't have time for that. And, the, and they believe that we should go out and meet what is out there. So... So that's the setup for the story. And uh, the hero, just like the hero of Crisis Moon, is a religious guy. But in my story, this story Omim, it's said a thousand years in the future. There's very few of them. But it's his faith that saves him on the other world. And I presume saves everyone else. Well, I don't know. You'll have to see. (laughs) So during the transition from screenwriting to novel writing, you know, we, as we know, and we've heard a screenplay is essentially a blueprint. It's uh, for, for a film. Um, So the the film's architecture is going to have all these other builders and craftsmen come in and build the film. What is a novel? If a screenplay is a blueprint, what is a novel? A novel is a dream from one person's brain to another. I believe the written word is the computer language of the human brain, the most sophisticated, powerful computer in the universe. It's how we know God in many ways. It's the word. It's how we know what's inside. It's, you know, language is significant, but a novel is is really, it's just me taking a dream out of my head and organizing it for you. And you get to experience the same dream with me. And And I think writers that do a great job I always walk away with a feeling 
like that really that existed, you know, like it must have felt that way for the writer as well. Mm. I know there's other people who'd be like, oh, it's a, you know, it's, they'll describe what it is, but they won't tell you its essence. But I think, don't you think I'm right? Its essence is basically someone's dream. Well, absolutely. I mean, the, the, the inexplicable way that an idea forms, whether it's actually from a dream in the middle of the night or a daydream in the middle of the day and how you can translate that onto paper that then gets published into a book that somebody halfway across the world reads and has an experience with is, is, is pretty incredible. That's why, yeah, it's the Um, connection. And you talked about independent distribution. That's the part that I have to have faith in is we do all have the tools to communicate and connect with one another. And so, you know, I'm trying to connect with people on a way that is fulfilling and might lead us closer to truth, both of us. And I, what I also find fascinating about the transition from, you know, from, from stage play or screenplay into a novel is that going back to what we said earlier is that when you're on stage as either a rock star or an actor, um, there's an immediate transaction with an, a live audience. You are essentially giving your, li- your love and your gift away in that moment. Um, and sometimes they're profound and sometimes it can be in a film, but I know for the most profound theatrical experiences I've had, it's been in the present live. As a writer who can spend years developing and executing a novel, it could be 10, 15, 20 years before that transformative experience happens with a reader, but you're not there to witness it or experience it or exchange it. And I find that to be, um, the essence of humility, where you're putting a gift out into the world and leaving the results to God and, and, and trusting that the way that mere Christianity, Christianity found you, that your work is going to find others when they're meant to discover it. And I find that to be such a beautiful um, example of using your giftedness in the service of others as a storyteller. I think you just hit the nail right on the head. That's really, that's the real truth is God removed my desire for the instant adoration, right? Mm. Right. And gave me this ability to write, which I shouldn't have. I wasn't a very good student in school. I didn't pay attention. I can barely spell, you know, I've gotten better, but I, I have to pay (laughs) people to really look at my work and, and all that stuff. But it is that unknown person 50 years from now who stumbles upon my PDF and reads it. And inside page 50, because of the way God used me now, there's just the right thing that person might need to read and hear that day. I'm willing to plant those seeds for the rest of my life, never knowing what the trees look like or what the fruit grows to be. Because I have faith that that is what I'm supposed to do. And so that's why I do it. Um, But if I was trying to sell as many books as possible so that I could get that big giant prize so that I could get more fame and then get more opportunity and then sell things. And, you know, if I was pursuing that, I would never write the material that I'm writing. You know, the most, the best selling self-published book ever of all time uh, is that book all about sex? 
What's that hmm. one that all the ladies were reading? And then, you know, it's embarrassing if you look at it. Have you ever opened it? Fifty Shades, 50 of, Shades Grey. of Grey. Like, I would go on vacation with my wife, with our daughter, a little baby swimming in a pool, and I'd see a mom reading that with her kids next to her. So I, you know, went in a bookstore once and, and flipped through it. I was like, I, I can't even believe this. Like, I can't believe that somebody would actually think that this is a, a book worth publishing. But look at how successful that is and how it got what it, it, it glamorized bad behavior. It glamorized using each other. It became it just it brought everybody down to its level. And so it's widely celebrated and widely monetized. And what I'm doing, very few people might ever know what it is, but the right person will. And that's what I have faith in. Well, what does that what does that say about our culture? If it's the best, if that book and story, which from what I understand, I haven't read it, is not not well written. No. Um, what does that say about our culture? I mean, it's it is the culture. That's that's what it says. You know, I think, and I, I try to get into this in my in my regular podcast episodes. People don't realize that. Uh, you have a human nature that is an animal side to you. And it is the most easily manipulatable part of who you are. You know, you, you, there's, and this, this is coming from mere Christianity. There's, I'm hungry, therefore there's food. I'm thirsty because there's water. I crave God and truth and beauty because it actually, there's a, it exists as well. So your cravings are tied to things that are real. But the perversion of your cravings that become physical, well, sex is a part of life. It's enjoyable. People like it. I, I noticed that as humans, we're really, really good at taking things that we like and concentrating them. You know, you can go buy, you can go mm. buy a little bit of, of marijuana. You can smoke it, plant dry and make yourself a cigarette and smoke it. Or you can go buy a concentrated 99% THC little paste It'll really hit you like a freight train instantly, right? And it's just a perversion of the nor normal way that something was. And why do people do it? Because we can. So everything gets perverted in that way. Everything gets uh, concentrated into its extreme. That's why people are walking around with cod pieces, you know, at a, at a parade and they think nothing of it because they're proud of their sexuality. It's like the most insignificant part of who they are but the world turned it into their focus because it's the easiest thing to get people to focus on is their physical needs, their physical pleasures. The spiritual stuff is much harder to get to because it requires somebody in the condition that I was in and that you've been in because I've read your work and you had a screenplay end with one of your characters walking down the street asking God, who is looking out for me, right? And you have to be in this vulnerable state for that palm of the hand experience to change into now I'm going to lead you somewhere better. So I think mm. that's a big part of it. So, I mean, like I'm, I don't want to knock on 50 shades of gray, but I mean, that is an example that you brought up that feels like what it tells me about our culture is that we have this great need for escapism because there's so much pain and suffering and brokenness in the world that we need to live an alternative um, in an alternative reality for a little bit and escape. And I mean, you know, the Spielberg movies are about escapism. We go to a park that, you know, has bred dinosaurs or, um, 
you know, so I'm not knocking the idea of escapism from our normal life, but what you're talking about in, in your work and in, in other people's work that's trying to mine and examine and explore the truth is, is I, fe- I feel like a great responsibility. And I feel like as artists and writers and storytellers, you know, defining what that responsibility is, is very important. Just like defining your responsibility as a parent. You're raising not a child, but an adult. And I feel like when you're writing a novel, you're not just writing a, a, a vehicle for which one to escape, but for one to find. Um, does that yeah, make that sense? makes a lot of sense. I mean, look, I've been asked to write things with other people in the past, like actors. Uh, one actor who's on a hit TV series came to me and said, here's my idea. And I want to write this with you, you know, because you, you know, you're, you're a good writer. I like you and we can work together, but here's what the action figures are. Here's the lunch pail. Here's the video game. Like he had all that stuff way before we even started writing. Mm. And that, that um, thinking you need to check those boxes off is somebody trying to fit into the game as it is. Mm. So it's, that's what I mean by, you have to go in this other direction and you, you know, enough of us have to not play that game anymore because it can only be played in and keep going as long as people flood to it to participate. And mm. so, you know, one of my popular blog posts is, is titled write books, not screenplays. Here's why. And it's just like, let's starve the institution that is, focused only on these these things that are worldly and therefore inspires all this bad behavior in people because we can't help it we're people right so we mm. we don't we don't have a very good uh organic playing field at all and and i'm just you know i'm of the opinion that it must be let to die and letting it die means that a whole generation of us goes you know unknown nobody passed the baton Nobody, uh, nobody was like, wow, this is this great piece of work by this writer one week. And then you see a new writer. It's just like the same people over and over again. And so a bunch of us just have to kind of be content with doing this thankless work of sowing the culture with better alternative stories so that they can be found later. Planting better yeah. seeds, healthier yeah, just seeds. So they can, so they can so be found, I'm- just so they can be found. Um, well, on that, and I want to be mindful of your time and, and, you know, people listening in's time, but, um, a few more questions for you. Like, what would you say to your 18 year old self or, and, or a, an aspiring storyteller that wants to move to LA or New York? What would you, what would be your advice to them? Well, the 18 year old self one, I really have a hard time with that because I think about it a lot and I don't know what I would say. 18 year old me was very sarcastic, very hard to talk to. So I don't know how I would have broke through. Um, mm. And I, and I mean, that's just honest. What was the other question? Well, say somebody, an 18, 20 year old kid says, Hey, I, I want to move to New York or in LA. Um, what advice do you have? Ah, so I want to be, all hey. right. So that part, uh, I would give them real advice, but I wouldn't just tell them, I wouldn't be like the guy in LA who just told me, the uh you know the finish line truth which is don't read this don't read that 
I've been given lots of advice that I didn't understand. So I would make an effort to make sure that the, there was an understanding of what I was trying to communicate. That's better than advice. Advice can be interpreted any way, you know, don't give up. But, there, but there's so much more to don't give up. Don't give up. Don't give mm. up because you don't know what's going to happen a year from now. You might get hit by a bus, be crippled. And while you're laying there, someone gives you a laptop and you start writing and you find out you're a great writer. Like, you don't know. You, you don't know. Mm. So don't give up doesn't mean um, keep punching, you know, keep hitting the, uh, what, are you, what are those, pinata. It doesn't mean keep hitting the, the, the pinata. It means keep following the compass towards your true north. You know, mm. stay the course. But it's so important. I heard a Navy SEAL say, you know, people, you can give them orders and they hate it. But if you tell them why, they'll do it and they'll do it right. So I use that with my child. I'm always providing context. You're going to do your homework, but here's why. You're on this journey in life. You're at this age and your job between this month and this month is to focus on educating yourself so that you can have the summer. You know, it's like you just have to constantly, constantly reiterate to people the context of what it is you're even saying so it's not misinterpreted. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't give advice. I would give context about the journey they're about to take, warn them of the pitfalls and tell them, you know, little things that I know about uh, trying to be aware of when the world, if they're an atheist, when the mystery or when God is trying to direct them in the right direction. That's great. Um, you talked a little bit about, uh, you know, the seeds that you're going to plant for a healthier garden in the future that you may never see. Um, is that your idea of legacy? And how would you define your own legacy on, on this planet? Because, you know, our life here is so fleeting. We've been given gifts and opportunities and purpose by God, I believe, and you believe. Like, what is your legacy? I'm, I'm, that's a, a topic that I do. I wrestle with a lot because I, I feel like legacy is tied towards a kind of wanting to be permanent in the world, which is not what I want. Mm. Mm. So legacy isn't really important to me anymore. It used to be. I used to tell people, hey, you know what was really motivating me to write Tigerland? I just wanted my name on the poster. I got it. You know what mm. I'm saying? Legacy can be the pursuit of legacy can be um, wrong. So what's my real legacy? My child who who goes mm. out and and lives according to a different understanding of life than I did and therefore is a better contributor to an to a better world and you know and has the equation right in her head. So that's my legacy. And nobody needs to know it, but they'll experience it when they meet my daughter and she's kind mm. and she cares, or she's the kind of person that you know helps them in some way. So I would I would say to anybody listening to really dwell on legacy because I have a feeling that desiring it might be evil. Wow. I think that's an important interpretation of it because legacy, I feel like in and of itself, I think is a good thing, but the world has figured out a way to kind of corrupt it or twist it um, in the service of self. And not I others. want compass legacy, not map legacy. I love it. My final question for you, besides how can people get your book and when is it released? 
Um, so if you want to answer that real well, quick. Well, I just hired an editor. We're working on it right now. Um, the formatting is, you know, everything is already done. Uh, it goes through editing for a couple of weeks. Then it gets formatted by my group in New Zealand. And then I get to release the book. Um, I'm hoping to get it to people by Thanksgiving, but it might be a little bit, maybe a week or two later, um, because my goal is to deliver a really high quality book that people enjoy reading and that gives them really something to think about. And maybe a great Christmas. Yeah, but that's actually, you know, I'm not in charge, am I? So maybe that's that's the point. It's just going to, maybe that's the timeline. It's just going to be a Christmas gift. So my final question, kind of wrapping up uh, and, and tying it all back to this idea of making it medium is who in your life personally or somebody that you know of out there in the world who uh, you would consider to be successful, who has made it medium that is inspiring to you? My wife. She's always made it. She's always operated in the make it medium way. She's never been about the things that I've been about. She's been about me, but you know, that's what we had in common when we were younger, but she has, uh, she's been a, a steadfast, solid person raised by a mom and dad who never got divorced, comes from a strong Catholic family. And all of her actions have always been about the concern of others. She's tremendously successful, is a very high earner, but you wouldn't know it if you ever met her. Drives a little car, doesn't flash anything, is not trying to prove anything to anyone. So I, I, I will end this thought because it's really, it's your topic that you've invited me into. And I'm grateful for that because I, I like to, you know, as you said to me a long time ago, steel sharpens steel. I, I think that that the medium, making it medium, might not even be something physical. It, it might be a way that you interact with the world itself. It's like, it's like mm -hmm. keeping the world at medium, right? Even better, keeping it at simmer. You know what I'm saying? But most, most people yes. have it turned up to boil, and then they fall in the water, and they get burned by that as well. Man, that is, that is an awesome way to end. I thank you for your time. i most appreciative of your, uh, your honesty and your vulnerability and sharing a little bit about your story and your journey that we're, we have our version of that. And I think uh, it will inspire people. And um, I really thank you. For this no, time. and I appreciate you giving me the chance to help get your message out for the first time on a podcast and, and to get this movement going. I know that you have always had a desire like myself you've been in the company of the lord knowingly longer than me but i still think often about your book that i don't know if you ever published it called read the red which was just the mm -hmm. red in the bible the words of jesus and i think we have that in common which is we both realize there's a lot of false targets and we're trying to narrow in on where the compass points to what true north is. So I believe that you are onto something wonderful with the idea of the compass versus the the treasure map. And, and I'm honored that I get to help you uh, deliver that out into the world for whoever finds it. Thank All you, right. brother. Love, Love you, man. Soon. Have a great day, Mike. You too. Thanks for the Thank opportunity. You. Talk to you soon.
magic tool that I try my best to always use. And although I get sometimes scared, I try my best to always dare. Talking. A magic tool. I have crossed boundaries and learned a few things of what can settle in when you pretend, dismiss, argue, and defend. 